Mephibosheth. Okay, Mephibosheth. It shouldn't be too hard, but it does seem to be. So here's this guy, Mephibosheth. And I want to give you some background about his life, and then I want to just take a look at what that looks like for us today. We may have people come in here at half past nine today, okay, because the service times are a little bit here and there, and we're still getting used to some new stuff. Uh, If that happens, don't be distracted. Everything will work out in the end. So, Let me give you some brief background about this fellow now. We know Israel. The Israelites were in Egypt. God called them together as a nation, then took them out of slavery and took them to the promised land. It was a 40-year journey that they took to enter the land of Canaan. Now, in that land, they started becoming bigger. They obviously grew in number. They grew in stature. They started taking possession of the land. They started conquering the people, taking the cities, building their own things. And they started becoming quite a big nation. Now, Israel was set up by God to be an example nation. But something happened, and they decided then and there that they looked around at all the other nations, and they said, well, they've got a king, and we don't. Because God said, I will be your king. And they said, yeah, but every other nation's got a human king. We want that too. And so instead of being a good example and leading, they took a look at what was around them and took that onto themselves. And they said, we want a king. And God said, it's not a good idea. And they said, we still want a king. Does it sound like your children ever? Don't climb that. No, I want to climb it. No, it's not a good idea. Okay. But that's what it is. And God said, it's not a good idea. And they said, we want it. We want a king. And so he said, all right, if you want a king, here's a guy. His name is Saul. Head and shoulders above everyone else. Uh, I've chosen him. Let's have him as king. The people rejoiced. They had him as king. Everything was fine for a while. Uh, But then his life started to take a turn. He started to disobey God, and his kingship uh, fell away. And so while he was still king, God said, all right, it's time to replace this guy. Now, The obvious choice, or the obvious way, the way that all the kingdoms around and about the Israelites worked is that the king's son would succeed the king. That is just the normal practice that still happens today, where there are kings and sons and heirs and princes and that sort of thing. Uh, So that was the pattern that they were following. And so it was assumed, obviously, that one one of King Saul's sons would take over. But God had a different plan. And God told the prophet at the time, to go into a house and anoint the next king. And he did that, and we many of us know that story. And he got to the house of Jesse, and he went through all the children, and David was out in the field, and he said, bring him in. He said, that's the guy. And he anointed him, and he carried on being a shepherd uh, until such time as he, as he became close to Saul. He was asked to play music in his court and that sort of thing. So David then, we, we know the story. It's, it's world famous. He conquered the giant Goliath. And he got to take Saul's daughter as his wife. So he actually became Saul's son-in-law. So it's an interesting thing. So here you've got Saul's son, one of them, Jonathan. And you've got David, his son-in-law. And David is the anointed king, but Jonathan's the rightful king. And so you've got this thing. But, and you would think that would bring a lot of tension into the household. But it didn't at all. Jonathan acknowledged very straight away that David was going to be the next king. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't a struggle. It wasn't something he had to give up at all. And so they made this pact. 
Jonathan and David because they said he knew. But at that stage, Saul was trying to kill David. And this is what the pact that the two of them made as David was fleeing. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. Now, it wasn't long after that that the enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines, there was a war, a battle, and both Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but as soon as a new king is appointed, if he's not from the, the bloodline, everyone from the old bloodline gets wiped out. You've got to kill the whole family of the previous king's because obviously they've got, the rightful, they've got the right to the throne. And so they could come back and challenge your authority if you're not from that family. And so you have to wipe all of them out. And they were all wiped out except someone, one boy. Now Jonathan, this is what happened. Jonathan, who was Saul's son, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. They don't know how severe that is. They don't know if it's crippled, if it's crutches, if it's paralyzed from the waist down. But whatever it was, it wasn't easy and it wasn't comfortable. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, she fell. Oh, sorry, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So you've got this five-year-old boy who was picked up by his nurse, and somehow she tripped or he tripped or something happened, and both of his ankles or legs became crippled. They didn't have the medicine that we've got today or anything like that. They couldn't straighten and put in. So, so that's the way he would have grown up, not able to walk properly, not able to work, uh, not able to get around. And um, then comes the story that we'll get into today. Because then comes a time where David is now sitting, and he's got relative peace all around him. And he says, I'm remembering an oath that I made. Is there no one left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Is there no one left? So he goes out of his way because he could very easily sit there and go, things are great. Things are good. I've got rest. I've got land. I'm more... F- you know, I've got more money than Saul ever had. I've got everything that I ever needed. But he doesn't stop there. He says... Isn't there someone that I can show kindness to? I remember an oath that I made, and I want to follow through with that. Is there anyone? And so, this is where we pick up the story. So this is where we're going to read some Bible. One day David asked, Is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am. Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar. I don't know if you know this. Lodabar means no word, no communication. It's like desolate. It's dry. It's like if you were walking through a place that was just arid and sparse and there was nothing of life there, you'd probably go, what do I call this place? The Valley of Desolation. No, I'm just kidding. You'd call it, you would call it Lodabar. It would just be, it's a place of nothingness. And that's where he was. 
Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you, this is amazing, all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson, in other words, Saul's grandson, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And then it gives some explanation there, some details. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, which is a lot of people that could work because Mephibosheth couldn't. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet, just in case you didn't get that. It just wants to throw that in at the end of there. He was crippled, just so that you know. Okay. A fascinating and incredible story uh, of, of grace, of kindness, of forgiveness, of reaching out, of restoration. Uh, just an absolutely amazing story. So what was Mephibosheth's life like before he met David? So he had grown up. He was five years old when, he was, when his father was killed and his grandfather was killed. He was five years old and crippled, and he had grown up. And since the time that he had been crippled to now, he had had a son named Micah. So he had gone on a little bit in age. But life for the person that should have been king was a very difficult and a very lonely life. It's even harder if you're crippled and you can't work to earn what you need to earn. You have to do, you have to imagine this. You have to do absolutely everything looking over your shoulder. Because if anyone discovers that you're there and that you are the rightful heir to the throne, you will be executed quickly, very, very quickly. And so you, you have to be very careful about how much detail you give anyone in your life. You're always leading this sort of double life in terms of, can I say, I can't say that. I could never say that my, my father is Jonathan. That's madness. So you have to make up stories and lies and imagine, even, even to your wife, because you just don't know, and to your family and to your employer. No, 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 I'm just nobody. I've just drifted in here. I've got no history, you know. And, and, and it's, it's lies upon lies, and it's just a very, very difficult life. You can never get too close to people in case they find out who you really are. And I can very much imagine that you grow up to be quite bitter because you should have been the next king. And as, as if that's not bad enough, you're crippled as well. Your self-worth never gets developed because you constantly live knowing that your family was defeated and the throne was taken away from them. You get a little insight into how he considered his self-worth when he says, why do you consider a dead dog like me? Why do you even look at me? Why do you bring me into your presence? I'm nothing. And you get a glimpse there of the self-worth that obviously just had never been developed in him. 
He had to stay in line so that he was never noticed. If he had a parking ticket, he would have had to sort it out straight away. Okay, because you don't want to end up in court and for someone to, to dig up files on you. So, so here's a guy who had to keep on uh, staying in line with absolutely everything. It's quite an incredible thing, and I think it paints a picture, and I think where he is makes a difference as well. You get this guy who's lonely, desperate, defeated, crushed, and he's living in this place that is a place that no one would ever visit, that is on the backside of the desert. It is just nowhere. Trying to escape. It's a very desperate situation. But then you get this. What kindness did David show him? In 2 Samuel 9 verse 7, I'm just going to read it again, although I did read it. It says this, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Isn't that amazing? So first of all, he's shown incredible grace. Where David could have exercised his rights over him, he was showed grace. He was allowed to live when he should have been killed. Not only was he shown grace and allowed to live, but he was shown kindness in that David blessed and provided for him. He was given land, all the land that King Saul had. That's not a little bit of land. All of that land and workers so that he never had to work. And then thirdly, as if being shown grace is not enough, As if being given blessings is not enough. He gets treated as a son, which is the highest honor. uh, There would only have been a handful of people who could have had that right in the world at that time. And he gets brought into the inner circle, to the table of the king, and allowed to eat there for the rest of his life. That's an absolutely amazing kindness that David shows him. So, now you know the story of a crippled man named Mephibosheth. And King David's kindness towards him. So the big thing is this. So what? It's good that you know that story. Because it's an amazing story. But how does that affect you? The Bible speaks about David as being a man after God's heart. A man who, who in some ways, not in every way, we know that he has flaws, he had flaws, and he did things he wasn't supposed to do. We understand that, but still God credits him as someone who had a heart after his, who wanted the same things as him, who hated the same things as God, who who loved in the same way, who cared in the same way. And David treated Mephibosheth like God treats us. This is where this story becomes real. Have you ever thought of yourself as being like Mephibosheth? I want to read something from the New Testament, and this doesn't apply to some of us in this room doesn't apply to one or two of us. It doesn't apply to those of us who are struggling. This applies to all of us. But let's read through this quickly. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Obeying the devil, the command of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. And that's absolutely true, is it not? Wasn't that testified to just earlier on today? Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. 
just like everyone else. Just like Mephibosheth was subject to David's wrath. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. For me, that's, that's like a mirror image of the story of Mephibosheth. It's us, down and out, lowly, following our own path, going our own way, trying to do everything that we want to do that is going to satisfy us, bring us pleasure, get us to the next uh, time where we're happy and excited and, and we think everything's all right until we crash again and we just pursue things and pursue things and we realize after everything we pursue that we are emptier than we were when we started. And we're dead to sin. And then... Christ steps in and brings this incredible life that nothing else can bring. Now, before David called for him, Mephibosheth had never known the king. And he never knew that a relationship with him was even a possibility. When the king came, he expected, I promise you, he did not expect the blessing. He expected punishment and judgment. But here's the thing. Instead of harm, he received absolute grace. And instead of death, he received new life. David did for Mephibosheth what he could never do for himself. And it's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. And you could be in that same place. Right now you can sit here. And and here's the strange thing. You can know Christ and sort of, if I can use the terminology, be in Lodabar. You can know Christ and be in a a place of desperation, of loneliness, of difficulty. It is possible. It is possible for, for him to have experienced the grace of David, the blessing of David, and to retreat and go back to live in the armpit of the desert. That is a possibility. And we, likewise, can do the same thing. It's not the right right thing. It's not going to help us. It's not going to take us forward. But it is possible. And perhaps you're in that same place. You're getting on with your life as usual. But for some of you, you never realized that a relationship with God was possible. You're just going about doing your own thing. But I want to give you just three very quick things about this story. Number one is this. David initiated a relationship. This is where this story parallels with Christ so brilliantly. You see, he didn't know he could go to the king and be blessed and provided for and live like the king's child. But God made a way for us in the exact same way. He made a way for for you to come to him without worrying about your sin and all the things that you've done wrong. God has sent Jesus to take the punishment we deserve So that when he looks at us, he sees his son. Isn't that awesome? Because for some people, you didn't know that it was possible to be in an actual relationship with God. The next thing that's interesting and that parallels is this. David sent a messenger with good news. Now, I don't want to compare myself 
to Zeba or anything from there. But I can tell you this, we are all messengers of good news. That's what we're called to do, right? Preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, speak the good news, all that sort of thing. And so today, in a sense, I'm like Zeba. In a sense, I'm the one who gets to bring the good news. And it's an awesome thing. I get to be the messenger who knocks on the door of Mephibosheth and says, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Follow us, because there's a new life waiting for you. That's what happened to him. And I'm telling you, that's what can happen to you as well. I get to be the messenger today. You get to be the messenger tomorrow at work. You get to be the messenger wherever you find yourself in the week. And the next thing, David welcomed him into his family. Now, the Bible teaches us that when we believe in Jesus, we become adopted brothers and sisters with Christ. That's why John 3.16 says that he gave his only begotten son. That would almost mean like your only natural son. But Jesus has many adopted brothers and sisters. All of us who have said yes to Jesus, suddenly and quickly, as quickly as Mephibosheth just started, first, you know, one night he's eating at his table and it's, there's nothing to eat and it's horrible and it's dirty and it's lonely. The next night he's sitting in the king's palace and he's eating this. And it's amazing. And we, in the same way, so quickly get grafted into the family of Christ. And we become co-heirs with Jesus. We become sons and daughters of the Most High. Isn't that amazing? Just like that. I think it's absolutely awesome. What did Mephibosheth do to deserve what he got from King David? There is nothing he could have done. Let's be honest. There was nothing he could have done to earn, to receive, to get anything that he got from the king. It is exactly the same with us. Do not think that you need to achieve a certain status. Don't think you need to have your spiritual life all sorted. Don't think that only once you've sorted out all these habits and things that are holding you back, that God's going to accept you. Nothing you could possibly do could earn you a seat at the table. But it's God's grace which reaches out and says, come. Come, come, you're welcome, you're invited, come here. You can be a child as well. So you already might be in that relationship with God, but like I said, still living in your own loader bar, discouraged because of circumstances, maybe feeling a bit lonely and isolated. Maybe like him, you have a low sense of self-worth where you just don't see yourself as much or anything. Oh, I just keep failing, I keep trying and not making it. I'm on the edge of giving up. Maybe you're in that sort of space. But I want to say this. If you are in any kind of bad space, this is a rhyme. You can rest under God's umbrella of grace. I did it so that you might remember it. <laughs> if you're in bad space, any bad space, you can rest under the umbrella of God's grace. You absolutely can. There is no space that's bad enough for God to say, whoop, okay, grace retracted. We get to go there, not because of what we've done. Is anyone excited about that? It's amazing. So, it's time for you to understand that God came to give you life and purpose and hope. 
so much of the time, and I know we're into the new year, but for a lot of people, you still feel like you're on the back end of last year. I know I do. I'm still waking up to the fact that I'm in 2016. And, uh, you know, you, for, for a lot of people, you're running on empty still. And you've had a holiday, but mo- I don't know. Does anyone else find that holidays aren't the most relaxing? They just, I don't know why. Maybe it's having young kids. Maybe it's having other family. I'm just not sure what it is. But whatever it is, they're not as relaxing as you think they're going to be. But let me say this. It is important to replenish yourself. It is important to take the time. I heard this once, and and, uh, it's not something I, I live by all the time. It's something that I try and I aspire to live by. And someone that I really respect and admire said this. He said, take rest every day, week, month, and year. What do I mean by that? Every day, take a small gap to rest. Doesn't have to be long. To rest, to really just be. Every week, take a gap, take a day where you're not working, where you're not extending yourself, uh, where you can actually recover and and, uh, replenish yourself. Every month, take a weekend and go and do something fun and different and out there to replenish yourself. And every year, take a holiday, take a week, take a couple of weeks and go and replenish yourself. I think it's wise words. Because so often we just live day to day, week to week, and then we find, okay, we're living for the holiday that's coming in December. That's not a healthy way to go. We need the rest and the replenishing constantly. You can't survive if you are always running uphill. It's not possible. So, as we begin this new year, find ways to replenish yourself.